0: Support for WRFA is brought to you by Southern Chautauqua Federal Credit Union. Southern Chautauqua Federal Credit Union provides credit union membership to people who live, work, worship, attend school, do business, and any other entities within Chautauqua County. It also offers a loan type of virtually any need, free life and permanent disability insurance and most consumer loans, and debt protection options. As a local community resource, Southern Chautauqua Federal Credit Union is committed to providing its members with the professional financial services they have come to expect. For more information, including how to become a member, call or text 716-665-7000 or visit them on the web at 665-7000.com. Southern Chautauqua Federal Credit Union, a proud supporter of community radio in Jamestown and Southern Chautauqua County. The following program is a special presentation of WRFA and the Reglin A Center for the Arts, made possible through funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and Listening. Thank you for like joining you. us
1: for this special community conversation. I'm Julia Sisla Hanley, WRFA Public Affairs Director. At this time, two years ago, we were starting to learn that it wasn't just going to be a two week shutdown to flatten the curve in COVID 19 cases of the pandemic. In fact, the first cases of COVID-19 in Chautauqua County were just starting to be diagnosed. A lot has happened in the last two years, and since the beginning of the pandemic, according to the New York State tracking data, over 23,000 people in the county have tested positive for COVID-19, and unfortunately, nearly 300 people have died. We've seen variants like Delta and Omicron surge through the population. With another variant, Stealth BA2, Omicron now starting to send cases back up in some areas of the state, But on a more positive note, we also have had vaccines available by the end of 2020, with two boosters also approved. The COVID-19 pandemic has now transitioned to being endemic, or in plain speak, the virus, much like the flu, is not going away. We want to take an opportunity to talk to those in healthcare and mental health industries about their experiences the last few years and the lessons learned, I first would like to thank you who are tuned to this program on our airways on 107.9 FM, as well as those who are watching online. While we don't have an in-person audience at this event, those watching online are invited to submit questions for our panel using the comments section that I will then ask if time allows. We do ask that you keep your questions brief. Also, I would like to note that this program is being made possible through funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting's American Rescue Plan X Stabilization Grant Fund. So we'll get started with our introductions. I uh, would like to introduce you to our guests tonight. So we have Bree Agate, who is an epidemiologist. She's from the Chautauqua County Department of Health and Human Services. Then we have Steve Cobb. So he's the executive director for the Mental Health Association in Chautauqua County. And then to my right, Cecil Miller, who is the vice president of operations for UPMC Chautauqua. Welcome, everybody.
2: Thank you. For Thank, you. Thank you. It's yes. good to be here.
1: So we will get started just immediately with our questions. Bree, we'll start with you. And the question that we'll ask everybody will be, how are you doing today? (laughs) It seems kind of a a casual question, but how are things at the health department in Chautauqua County for things in either at at your department or in the field right now?
3: It's kind of a loaded question, isn't it? <laughs> it's It's been a two years for sure. Uh, so we, we continue to be very busy um, regardless of the fact that investigations and contact tracing have kind of been reduced to a minimum. Um, we still have COVID <clears throat> responsibilities that we're responsible for, including um, testing in the schools. We provide resources for all the school districts in the county to fulfill their um, mandatory testing for unvaccinated staff. Uh, and we also continue to answer any questions that the schools have regarding guidance on COVID-19. We respond to inquiries from the community and we're also working on our after action reports. So our preparedness team, we meet on a weekly basis to assess over the course of the last two years, what have we done? What have we done well? What, needed, what can we improve upon and how can we look toward the future and plan um, using the knowledge that we've acquired over the last two years to um, plan to do better in the future? What are the things that we can really work on? Um, in addition, we're, we're in the process of developing a wastewater monitoring program for COVID-19 to be able to understand what those levels of COVID-19 are in the community, regardless of whether or not somebody goes to get tested or has any symptoms at all. Um, so we're very proud of that program. We think there's a lot of potential for it. Um, so aside from covid We're working on community health assessment and community health improvement plans. And we're also rebuilding all those programs that we had prior to COVID, um, we're still responsible for during COVID. Some of them, we haven't been able to give the attention they deserve. Um, So a a great example of that is sexually transmitted infections. And across the nation, across the state, those numbers are on the rise. And now that people are starting to access health care more frequently, we're finding that that's true in our community as well. And so we're trying to quantify that issue and develop messages to try to educate the community about sexually transmitted infections. All right. Thank you very much. Stephen, same question. So how
1: are you today? How are things at the MHA?
4: Sure. Um, so I, I think the first thing I want to say is to just let everyone know we're open um, I, I still um, <coughs> encounter confusion as to whether we're open and providing services, so we are. Um, we One of the things that was interesting for us was that we never stopped providing services during COVID, and we continued to, all through COVID, provide, except for two weeks, um, even our in-person services. We varied them, but and took into account the safety of our staff and anyone who we would encounter, but um, we were one of the few uh, mental health providers that continued to do that during those er- early times of uh, the pandemic. And and then w- what happened, um, we kind of transitioned to a model that there was some virtual stuff and then some in-person stuff. So um, we have, um, since the, just after the first of the year, we've started adding more in-person stuff um, both in Jamestown and in Dunkirk. Um, A big part of uh, the services and the supports that we provided were forms of social support for people who were in recovery, inviting people to come together and get connected and uh, develop the supports that support recovery. Um, So we've um, engaged back in that process of inviting people back and um, doing that in a safe way for for our participants and for our staff. Um, And that's been going pretty good. We're making good progress with it. And I think the other thing that's really at our forefront um, of our agency and um, particularly our board is just the the health and welfare of our staff. Um, we've really had to focus on that in ways we never did before. Um, so, um, you know, being an organization that's kind of based on a peer recovery model. All of us have our own lived recovery experiences. So um, I think a lot of attention and support um, has been provided to our staff. How do we keep them healthy? How do They're our greatest asset. How do you keep them uh, at a point where they can do what they need to do to support uh, the people in our community. So, um, so that's kind of the new direction we're looking, and I think we're doing pretty well so far. And looking forward to some new ways to support our staff and keep everyone healthy and um, and and able to help the people in our community. So, thank you, yeah,
1: Cecil at UPMC Chautauqua, obviously. The hospital itself has gone through a lot of changes. but So what, how are things going today with what has happened with COVID?
2: Well, it's been interesting. That's uh, for sure. So at the beginning of COVID, you know, our area really wasn't hit that hard. So while we were testing and we were ramping up and we were ready, uh, we weren't seeing the patient volume that many parts of the country were. So, you know, it gave us a little time to prepare. That was probably uh, helpful. Um, but the last quarter, last four months of 2021, uh, I've been there 26 years, it's by far the busiest I've ever seen the hospital. Um, <clears throat> we couldn't transfer people because every hospital was in the same situation. Uh, nursing homes were full, they couldn't take people, It was because of staffing issues a lot of times. Um, so we, were, we had days where we were literally boarding 40 or 50 people in our emergency department, which has enough rooms for 28. Um, you know, I give our staff credit. I, you know, they came in, worked day by day in, in the same situation. And, uh, you know, we did a great job caring for the community, as always. Um, we put rooms where there weren't normally rooms in the emergency department. It's just what we did. Uh, we doubled up rooms on the floors if we had to. We did what we had to do to take care of patients. Um, today, as you ask, um, things are much better. You know, I think um, all hospitals have seen a little relief uh, from that spike in covid uh, today we had no COVID patients in-house. Um, it's been that way for a couple of days for the first time in a long time, so that's great. And I know our sister hospitals, you know, Hammett, Northwest, um, they're seeing the same thing, so that's great. Uh, we've also worked on some great relationships with the nursing homes, um, and they're taking more patients. Patients that maybe didn't meet criteria for insurance, uh, they're taking them now. Um, so it, it's really been a great community effort, and uh, we're certainly today in a much better place than we were three months ago, and I tell people, you know, if you need care, I've said it all along, you, you need to get the care now, don't wait, don't put it off, because that certainly has been one of the things we've seen from COVID is people put off care, and then when they came in, they were really sick, and, and we didn't find the things we would have if they had the, uh, you know, primary care or screenings.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So moving on to the next question, and Stephen, I'll start with you, and it's, it's kind of a big question. What did you learn from the pandemic? What did you learn at MHA or even just personally?
4: Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, That was actually one of the easiest ones for me to answer. Um, I I think from my perspective as somebody who works in the mental health field, and I I think uh, amongst our staff, this was pretty universal. We really realized that people um, in general just aren't prepared for isolation and crisis and change um, like we encountered in COVID. Um, and it really made us realize that, um, that, especially from a mental health point of view, it's so easy for us to know what we need to do to take care of ourselves health-wise. Like we know if we go to the gym and we go through these routines, um, our body is going to be healthier. We know if we eat a good diet, um, our, our body is going to be healthier. But few of us know what we should do on a regular basis to take care of our mind, to take care of our mental health. And, um, and you know, really being aware of that process of what you do to take care of yourself emotionally and mentally, um, I, I don't think we pay attention to that as a society. Historically, we're not comfortable talking about mental health. Um, so, um you know, I, we've really learned that at least in the folks who we work with, and uh, the folks who we work with um, are obviously more susceptible to mental illness to really begin to talk with them about those wellness techniques and what do you do and 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 how do you take care of yourself mentally? Um, is is it um is it fishing? Is it walks? Is it biking? Is it journaling? And really be creative to help people come up with those ways to take care of themselves. And you know, I, I have to say, honestly, even myself personally, when I was in the middle of the pandemic, I had to sit and look at that for myself. I, I had always assumed I was in a pretty good place with what I did to take care of myself um, mentally and, and emotionally and realized that I wasn't as in, a, as in as good of a place as I thought I was. So um, I've really spent a lot of time with that. Um, we've, we've done a lot of work with our staff, doing that. And now when we connect with somebody who comes for services, that's one of the first things we ask. You know, what's your routine? What are you doing to address the the mental health stuff? So many people come to us and say, I go to the gym every day, which, which is great. Um, but, you know, what, what are you doing for um, emotional and um, mental support? So we've really been aware of that. We've really learned a lot about that. And I think um, the other thing I learned was that prior, um, <clears throat> we've our, our agency has always had a big embrace of harm reduction and the principles of harm reduction, whether it's on the substance use side, but also on the mental health side. And um, I think we've embraced those even more um, during the pandemic. Um, not always just from the point of view of Saving a life, you know, we think of that harm reduction technique of, or practice of um, naloxone that will save somebody's life who's overdosing. Um, of course, that's important. But harm reduction finds its root in, a, honestly, a basic love and respect for other people to meet them where they're at, to, to understand. I think one of the things we learned during the pandemic was that everybody looks for something to cope with stress. Um, it's not just somebody who has a substance use disorder. It's not somebody who has mental illness. All of us look for that. That's that's part of that's part of human nature. And when we understand that and accept that, the harm reduction approach becomes really easy. Um, because that person you know across from us who we're trying to help, and I don't just mean us as mental health providers, I also mean us as neighbors, I also mean us as community members, to, to take that approach and um, listen to people, meet them where they're at, and offer support. So um, those those are two things that become very clear to me personally, and then also us at the MHA.
1: Cecil, mm-hmm. so we'll, we'll go to you next. And what would you say mm-hmm. are things that you learned from the pa- pandemic, on um, either personally or from the hospital side?
2: You know, the first thing is... Uh, nurses and and our employees in general are incredible. I mean, you think back, we didn't know exactly how this was transmitted. And so we're telling, you know, our people in the ED, somebody's going to come in with respiratory problems, you need to care for them. And they did. And, you know, it's easy for me, I sit in an office, slap on the N95, you'll be fine. But, you know, these are real situations, and we didn't really know. You know, we knew we wanted to wash our hands, wear a mask, but we didn't know how it was transmitted. And they came to work every day. You know, it was really incredible. Um, <clears throat> the other thing is the depth of the system that I worked for UPMC. Um, it, it was incredible. I'd be on calls every day with Tom Reed and other hospitals, and every hospital was out of everything, You know, whether it was masks, gloves. And you remember how it was that first six months especially. And it was almost embarrassing. We just never had those issues um, you know we always had enough supplies we all we had the monoclonal antibodies we were the first in the area to provide that um, it just was never really an issue for us um, and that's the depth of a system as large as UPMC um, and, and it really it was incredible I, I remember uh, the Department of Health you know one of their mandates was that every hospital have a 90-day supply of PPE um, in a warehouse that you didn't touch just in case so Um, We got a nice letter from the Department of Health saying, if you don't have this 90-day supply by Monday, um, there would be an X amount of dollar fine per day. So this was on a Friday morning, and we had a supply by Friday night from Pittsburgh. So um, I don't know a lot of hospitals who could, you know, dig that deep and and be able to do that. So um, the, the last thing. The collaboration within healthcare hospitals you know department of health everybody how we work together we tend to be very siloed um, before COVID you know we did our own thing we looked at everyone as competition we didn't necessarily work that well together I'll admit that Um, but this forced all of us to work together and I, I think ultimately that was a great thing
1: yeah the whole silo thing definitely one of the things I noticed changed a great deal when we were when we were going through in any any industry with COVID, uh, free. I'll finish up on this question with you. What would you say you learned during the pandemic in for yourself and within the county health department?
3: Well, I'll say that as a department, obviously experience is the best teacher. And if you think about the role of the health department, what how how much. More serious could it get than a pandemic, right? And uh, prior to the pandemic, we, we had to do all these drills and exercises for preparedness every year or every other year. There's there's something that we have to do. And prior to a COVID-19 pandemic, uh, we had done a, a HEPA exercise. And that was at... So it was a post-exposure prophylaxis exercise that we did at JCC prior to COVID. And uh, I remember... Can I you it. back up and explain sure. what that is? Because <laughs> I'm, I'm... Oh, I'm, okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, so... um. If someone is exposed to a virus, uh, we know that they've been exposed, whether it's uh, by a food handler or um, in an environment perhaps where there's drug use or like a homeless shelter. If someone's been exposed to a virus, um, like such as hepatitis A, um, in the case of hepatitis A, post-exposure prophylaxis, which is basically vaccination after you've been exposed, um, that can help to prevent serious infection and also death. So it's a it's a big deal. Uh, and we have to do these exercises periodically just to make sure that we know how to do this. It's the responsibility of the health department to, to take that on. And at that time before COVID, it was it was a lot of work. It was very overwhelming. And uh, throughout COVID, you know, we've we've really learned a lot about uh, case investigations, contact tracing, and hosting large-scale events to to vaccinate people. And during the COVID nineteen pandemic, we are, we're also dealing with an outbreak of hepatitis A. And uh, this was about a year into the pandemic, and you know we're all pretty busy as it is. And here we are having to get into Hep A investigations and to do post-exposure prophylaxis clinics uh, and. It was just fascinating the way that our team was seamlessly able to roll from COVID-19 vaccinations into doing hep A vaccinations. It was almost nothing because our team had learned so much about how to pull off a large-scale vaccination clinic. So, if nothing else, certainly the experience of COVID-19 has been an extraordinary teacher for our department.
1: Mm -hmm. And I remember that those hep A clinics were happening at MHA. So we were exactly. advertising, yeah. you know, okay, if you want to you get your COVID vaccine, or if you want to get your HepA vaccine, you go to MHA on these days, and they have it there in other locations. So wow, yeah, it's definitely, it was one of those things that was kind of like all rolled into one, and definitely was, a, right.
3: yeah. Sure, we can do that. We've been doing it for right. however many months. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so start with the third question, Cecil, I'll start with you. Uh, what would you say, were the biggest challenges during the pandemic at the hospital, and how were those addressed?
2: It was probably the pace of change. You know, we'd receive notice usually on a Friday, late in the day, of whatever the mandate was for the next week, and we'd have to react. Uh, You know, one that I remember well is when um, hospitals were going to start do the first vaccinations. Well, I can tell you, and Bree will agree, (laughs) we're not set up to do large-scale vaccination. They are. You know, that's what they do. It's not what we do. But that being said, that's what we were called to do, and that's what we did. So you'd get, you know, a vial holds 10 doses of Moderna. Um, So let's say we, you know, we had enough for exactly 100. Well, early on, it was hard to get vaccine, and you had to be very careful. We didn't want to waste any. And if you did, you know, there was a process, you know, to let the department know, and You know, you felt a little like you could be in some problems if you wasted a dose. So we'd have a clinic, and we'd have 100 doses, and we'd get to a point where we used 98, and now what are we going to do with these two? And there were only certain people who could receive the vaccine at that point. So, you know, we'd call the county. Do you have anybody, you know, who who is due for the dose and you know we'd call people and get them down and and we fortunately you know in those early days we never had to waste the dose but i can tell you it was trying i can remember days at four o'clock in the afternoon thinking you know who are we going to give this to um but we you know luckily we found people and and it was just those types of changes um that we learned you know we're we're a big organization we have a lot of employees upmc is you know almost a hundred thousand employees Things don't always move quickly, but we learn to move fast.
1: Brie, I'm going to come back to you and ask that same question. So what would you say biggest challenges during the pandemic and how oh, would they address?
3: Yeah, my answer is is somewhat similar in that um, I, I would say that the the biggest frustration was the constantly changing guidance and the mandates or rulings that would come down and we had no notice at all you know in, in a lot of cases we would hear about them from local media who were inquiring about the uh, <laughs> the governor's press release and how we were going to um, fulfill whatever uh, mandate was coming down at any given moment and we had absolutely no notice we didn't have any guidance, and we were expected to to do a lot without any notice at all. And yeah, that, was, that was I incredibly frustrating. Guidance,
2: that was the wrong term. No.
3: You're right. You're right. It wasn't <laughs> I mean, guidance was yet. Guidance. <laughs> it was, yeah. The mandate. The guidance <laughs> the mandate. was to come out, you know, two to three weeks after the mandate <laughs> was to be enforced, yes. So that was incredibly frustrating. And the target kept moving and and... I recall during these, these press conferences, call your local health department. They'll know what to do. Call your local health department. And we had no idea what to do. No one, you know, our, our message was trust us, come to us, let us help you. And at the same time, you know, we didn't have anything to, to base our, our guidance on because we, we just found out that that change was happening. And I would say that the, the last thing that I was thinking about here is a lack of resources. At the beginning of the pandemic, we had Almost no resources in terms of funding, in terms of additional staffing support. We couldn't hire any additional people. We were told we couldn't use volunteers. Um, resources came late. I would say too little, too late. Except for, I would say that the resources that are being provided now are, are adequate. They're just not as important as they would have been last year at this time. You know, the money has come through, but. When we were starting to do vaccination clinics, we had no idea that we could purchase items and then they would be reimbursed later on. So we didn't have proper signage. We didn't have you know, new, you know, cots or, or uh, uh, barriers to, to protect privacy, anything like that. We didn't have any resources to, to buy those things. In hindsight, the money was coming, but nobody told us.
1: <laughs> Millions of dollars. Absolutely, Yeah. yeah.
3: And we're not used to spending money. So,
1: (laughs) like, what are we supposed to do with this? And thinking about when you're talking about not the guidance but the mandates is that, you know, it was one of those it was almost appointment viewing to watch the governor's update every day because you never knew what was going to be announced at any given time and what changes. And at the time I was working in government and myself and wondering, well, are, what are we going to be able to do? What am I going to be able to tell people that are we are we going to be shut down for two more weeks? Are we going to be able to open up anything? And so knowing and mine was at such a small level, and that, and for a lot of people, but for you know, healthcare industry to be mandated and you know not have the information to go with it, yeah. Totally, un- it was it was one of the things that was really unbelievable in some ways. But yeah, you did manage it.
3: Just do your best every day. Yeah, you know. Steve best you can.
1: Oh, yeah, sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt okay. <laughs> yeah. Stephen, we'll, we'll go to you. Uh, so biggest challenges during the pandemic, and how did you address?
4: Yeah, our, our, I think one of our biggest challenges was really early in on the pandemic. We, um, The population who we served, um, a lot of them are very vulnerable and have a lot of very special needs. And um, we had a really difficult time connecting with them. Um, but we had the knowledge that they needed help. They needed support. And we just weren't quite sure how do you get to them, how do you support them. Um, you know, that time when people were just afraid to come out unless it was an absolute emergency and um, when you're um, helping and supporting people who um, are experiencing mental health symptoms and substance use disorder, you don't want to let things get bad to come out for help. You need that support all through the process. It was it was really difficult. Um, I, and the way we um, kind of got around that initially was we, um, we realized that food was an issue for a lot of folks and getting food to folks. And um, we, had, um, we had had some relationships with the Salvation Army,, you know, some contacts, but we were really um, they were having a really hard time getting food out into the community also, and they knew um, that there were people who normally would come for food. Um, that weren't coming anymore. So they had names and they had addresses. And we kind of got together and talked and said, well, we know these people need food. And we from our list knew that probably these people need food. So we were able to partner with the Salvation Army there for those first couple months. And I had staff there working. Um, So we were able to start making food deliveries um, for the Salvation Army. Um, And that got us out into the community. Um, and we connected with people who the Salvation Army had and folks who were our participants. Um, So with the uh, showing up and bringing food, we were also able to show up and bring um, access to mental health supports, to addiction supports, and and to also provide information to folks as to what services were available in the community because a lot of people were under the impression that everything had shut down, and while a lot of stuff had shut down, there were ways to access those services. So um, I, we were able to really um, connect with a lot of people that way um, through food um, and to um, really, I think, serve them in a way we weren't quite sure to or how we were going to do that initially. So um, I was really um, that wasn't really what we how we expected to do that, but um you know, that, those partnerships in the community that we had, um, at least among the nonprofits in Chautauqua County, um, I, somebody already touched on that, but we really connected in ways we've never connected before, so I was really happy with that, and um, and I think Again, I already touched on this, but one of the challenges we had was just making sure our staff were healthy and taking care of themselves. Um, We um, responded, we respond a lot to overdoses in our community. So um, going out and not having access to some of the same supports we would have had before then um, really kind of took its toll. Um, So um, I I think really... um, you know, we really learned our greatest asset is our staff. Um, we already knew that, but we learned it in a deeper way. Um, so, um, yeah, that that was one of the big challenges we had to figure out.
1: So. Mm. Yeah, and, and for as much as I know the folks at MHA, and, and back then I was not even aware that you guys had collaborated with the Salvation Army mm-hmm. on that that project, and, and yep. yeah, that was something definitely. I, I knew St. Susan's had closed down, and yep. so, and I think it eventually started offering to go yes. bags, but yeah. at but at the same time, I mean, people who normally right. you know would have come out to get them were afraid to. Right, yeah, so. and
4: even St. Susan's when when they did reopen, and were were passing out to go. They would let us come over and get a bunch of to-go lunches, so that when we were out meeting with people, we could also hand those out. So, just these partnerships just sprang up out of nowhere, Um, which in hindsight they all made sense. But sometimes, um, you know, sometimes we grow in difficult times. So, um, and we learn we can do things that that we didn't even think of before.
1: So. All right, and so these comments are going to fit well into our next question. <laughs> but before I go to the next question, just for our viewers and listeners, I want to introduce our panel again. Uh, we have Bria Agate, who is an epidemiologist for the County Health Department, and then to, to her left is Stephen Cobb from the Mental Health Association in Chautauqua County, and then Cecil Miller to my right, who is the Vice President of Operations for UPMC Chautauqua. So, once again, thank you for for being here on this panel with us to talk about COVID-19 and and kind of a two-year retrospective, but also talking about things today. Mm -hmm. So, going back to the next question, what opportunities, and this is a weird question to me, because pandemics are horrible. Obviously, the, the effects they have on the community are horrible, but... It forced, I think, a lot of people and agencies to do a lot of things. So what opportunities, if you would say there are any, came out of this pandemic? And Cecil, we'll start with you.
2: You know, we certainly had to become more efficient. Um, you know, I don't think it's a surprise to anybody that there's a staffing shortage in healthcare. care. Um, so we were dealing with that. At the same time, we were dealing with, you know, volumes that we hadn't seen before. So you have to find ways to be more efficient, you know whether it's with nursing staff, whether it's using nurses' aids in ways you didn't before, um, whether it's you know in housekeeping and maintenance, you know you name it, every department had to find ways to do more with less. Um, so that was one of the things we we learned. you know the other thing let I look at my notes, sorry. Um, we were forced to keep patients that we hadn't kept before. So in the past, you know, we may have shipped somebody to Hammett. Well, Hammett was full. They couldn't receive any patients unless, you know, it was really a critical uh, patient that we couldn't keep. So we learned to keep sicker patients at UPMC Chautauqua. We have great doctors. We have great staff. Um, we have a system of 40 hospitals with thousands of doctors that they can use and call and, and you know, video chat with, um, and we were able to keep patients that in the past we didn't think we could, and we found out, you know, we we have the talent, we have the bench strength, um, and we're able to keep those kind of patients. So that that was what we learned.
1: Yeah. Going down the line, because, Stephen, what were some of the opportunities? You kind of did mention Mm, some of them, but what are some other opportunities that you found uh, came out of this pandemic for the MHA?
4: Yeah, um, I I think I just for a second, I want to touch on that partnership of the nonprofits. um, The United Way of uh, Southern and Northern Chautauqua County really stepped up and organized um, those community based organizations to support people um, in ways that I haven't seen before, so we we had regular weekly meetings where we discussed how can we support each other, um, how can I come over and help you, how can we um, do this, and it was um, that that really kind of changed a lot of relationships that we have with um, other community-based organizations, um, and that's been that's been wonderful and amazing. Um, I I think the other thing that has come out of the pandemic. Um, particularly in Chautauqua County is a new awareness of how we respond to mental health crisis. Um, And not just um, from our agency, but also a crisis response out in the community with the police or with the um, crisis response team that Chautauqua County now has um, that uses both peers and, and clinicians to go out in the community and connect with people who are in crisis to, um, I I think one of their first goals is to try to be able to stabilize and support people without taking them to the hospital. Um, And then if we do have to take them to the hospital, uh, a way that probably would be a little bit better um to get them into the hospital if that's necessary, so prior to the pandemic um, that we didn't have crisis response teams in Chautauqua county, our crisis response teams were our fire departments and our volunteer fire departments, and then the police would show up so really, we're in the infancy stages of this and figuring it out, but i'm I'm really optimistic that in the, within the next couple of years, we're going to see something. Um, that we can, as a county, really be proud of, and we'll really serve our people um, in ways um, that's much better for them. Um, then, a lot of times, people in crisis don't need to end up in the hospital emergency room. We're able to support them in in ways at their home, which might be better than than taking them to the hospital. And that's a good thing. That's good for people, and that's good for Cecil in the hospital too. So, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Bree, uh, so same question. So what opportunities would you say came out of this?
3: So I think that in the past, a lot of people um, maybe didn't even know what public health was. And I'll say that now I feel that public health is in the forefront. And so because of that, we've gained more attention um, in terms of what the gaps are and what the needs are for the community and our public health needs and we've had more funding opportunities that we had in the past um, so that's certainly a wonderful opportunity and as i already mentioned experience being the greatest teacher for for covid i mean we've been able to learn so much throughout or the course of the last two years um, additionally, technology. I mean, we had access to um, certain technologies in the past, but we never really had to use them. Um, we still had the opportunity to see each other in person. But this, the, the need to socially distance really forced us to use Zoom and Skype and Microsoft Teams and these, these tools that are really, really powerful that we just weren't fully taking advantage of. And so we're able to connect with partners across the state and the nation a little more seamlessly than we were in the past, and even saving resources locally to, to host meetings Online And another technology that I I kind of mentioned before is the wastewater monitoring. Um, And it's currently being used for COVID-19 to understand what those levels of COVID-19 are in the community. But there's the option to test for other uh, infectious diseases as well as other biomarkers in the community that I think would be really helpful for our healthcare community in general, you know, for providers in the community to know that RSV is on the rise or influenza is on the rise and these are the things I should test for. This is how I should treat my patient. And also for the community at large to understand, you know, for those who might be more vulnerable or have many underlying conditions, they can make an educated decision on what they're going to do, where they're going to where they're going to go, if whether or not they're going to wear a mask. Um, they can really make an informed decision about those things. And that's a technology that Had COVID not come along, we probably never would have explored. Yeah, and from someone who's in an information business,
1: I've definitely appreciated the addition of the wastewater um, testing results that have been added to the county health department's COVID-19 page and also the link to where you could look at even results for state, for 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 the 40-some, I think, communities who are doing those testings because it's just like people want information. And be able to see that graph now and see how the, you know, it's gone up and now down again, fortunately, and at least for last week, uh, to kind of get a sense for well, where are we? Because the at-home tests, people aren't reporting them, so trying to get a sense for well, is it safe out there? And I was like, well, okay, this is just one more piece of information. And, and, and I have to ask, it I wasn't on my list of questions, I said, but how many of, you, how many of us use Zoom before COVID-19? And, I, and I'm going to say, raise your hand if you use Zoom. <laughs> and for people who are listening, I don't think any of us are raising our hands. And, and, I, and I won't ask you the question of how many hours per week you figure you spent <laughs> on Zoom or Microsoft Teams, because I, I happen to know it's probably more hours than you ever would want to think. <laughs> so, but no, I mean, yeah, the technology that came out of this, you know, from an information standpoint, access to information uh, and from, you know, not outside of healthcare for me, being able to watch... Government meetings or meetings being held uh, you know over Zoom and not having to be there in person or even people not having to be together in person is such a great resource so a lot of things i I could go on my own so, the whole topic of things I learned during the pandemic, but was, there really were some things that came out of it, plus the funding i'm sure the funding i, I, I that's one thing i didn't think to ask was just how much the funding has affected what you are able to do, and maybe we'll ask that at the end if we have time so in terms of accessing healthcare, you know, in Chautauqua County, I mean, you know, we are rural county, but what is the message that you have for folks in our community about accessing healthcare, especially, you know, with still, you know, it is a pandemic, still an endemic, and, and there are other issues. And so, Brie, we're going to start with you again, because you did mention this, that, you, uh, that you're doing an assessment, and so if we could maybe
3: elaborate on, on that and also the message you
1: would have for folks.
3: Sure. So in terms of the community health assessment, um, that's a, an exercise that we do every three or years in partnership with our local hospitals and community partners to um, identify what the health needs are in the community. And we take a look at the secondary data to, to understand, you know, what diseases are more common in our community and how do we fare compared to the state and the nation. Um, and one of those is, is health care, you know, and, and um, health insurance status, um, people seeking out preventative care. Um, so like for example cancer screenings would be a great example. Um, so we, we will be taking a look at that and I don't have any of that information at my fingertips yet. Um, but one of my key messages for the community or, or what I would urge individuals locally to do is really to seek health information from people who are medically trained um, rather than friends on social media or your preferred politician and to start with questions rather than conclusions and to keep your mind open. You know, I think over the course of the last two years we spent a lot of time, on our phones, uh, online, you know, just reading everybody's opinions and comments, and it really, I think, shapes... Shapes the way we think, the way we talk, and the way we interact with others. And I think we need to kind of take a take a step back as a, as a community and really trust those who have been trained in whatever uh, the topic of the day is. And in, in the case of healthcare, I would say to to take advantage of the great resources that we have in healthcare and those individuals who have spent a lot of time learning. Um, you know the the best information on these topics and and really take advantage of them. So whether you're accessing them in person, virtually, um, just make sure that those individuals that you're reaching out to are appropriately trained um, to to make your own conclusions. Mm-hmm.
1: And given that, I, I, we've, we mentioned a couple times that you're an Epidemiologists and just remind list- listeners and viewers what is an epidemiologist?
3: <laughs> so, epidemiology is the study of the um- Of disease in communities, as well as the determinants of disease in communities. So what are the levels of heart disease? What are the levels of COVID-19, other infectious diseases, as well as the behaviors that contribute to them? So looking at obesity, nutrition, uh, physical activity, all those sorts of things really play into um, epidemiology itself, as it's the study of those things. So an epidemiologist, um, there's actually a broad array of things that epidemiologists do. And obviously, during COVID-19, the the greatest thing that's been highlighted is, is case investigations for infectious diseases. But it's really using data science to understand your community and what impacts our health and looking kind of holistically at a community and not just at um, one individual indicator, but the community at large to see what are the things that impact us individually and as a society.
1: Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask that question because when you talk about seeking out people who... Are trained and have uh, the background knowledge about you know when it comes to questions about health care I that's why we invited you on this program. <laughs> that's one of the examples uh, But moving along Stephen same question mm-hmm. I mean this is I mean obviously healthcare. It's mental health is healthcare. What are the f- message you have for folks looking at accessing services of this sort?
4: Uh, yeah, um well i I think first of all, I would say just here in the county, all of our um mental health providers are open and all of them are seeing patients so um I think it's important to just make sure everyone knows that um, and i i i I think it I, the other thing I would say is that um I, reach out and ask for help um, something as simple as that we we are um we're so adverse to talking about mental health um, and we're afraid to talk about mental health, I think for a lot of us. So um, to re- really um, reach out to folks and ask for help. But sometimes that support for something on the mental health side um, might first come from your neighbor or a family member. It, it can start right there. Um, and then the, the next step, Um, might be to reach out to a professional for help. Um, I I think the other thing we found out in the mental health field was that, um, and I had a hard time imagining how this would work. How do you deliver mental health services through Zoom? How do you deliver mental health services through a virtual appointment? And you know what? It actually works pretty good. Um, I I think there are times where you might want to be face-to-face with somebody, but I think there are times where Zoom or a virtual appointment works really well. Um, so, so don't be afraid to try that for mental health. And I think the other th- thing um, I want to say is um, I, I think all of our clinics in Chautauqua County, I, I know that they all do, um, they all now have peer support services in the clinic. So um, UPMC does, uh, TLC does, um, and Chautauqua County Mental Health does at both their clinics. So, um, and that's a wonderful part of the mental health system that is everywhere now. So in addition to those clinical support services, which are often essential, there's also that peer support thing um, that is available to anyone in any of these clinics. So, And all those services um, are covered by insurance, too. So that's a good thing. So, um, and, um, you know, the, the, you have those couple levels of support that you can now have in our clinic. So take advantage of those. Mm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Cecil, what would you say for messaging for people who are looking at accessing health care? Obviously people, if they're coming to the hospital, usually it's not always planned, but sometimes, yeah. you know, for the services offered there, it is.
2: Yeah. This, this one was easy for me. It, it's safe to come to the hospital. It's safe to go to your doctor. It's safe to go to get your colonoscopy. It's safe to go get your mammogram. People have put these off. I mean, we're seeing, you know, backlogs because we know, you know, we call people at the five-year mark, and you're due for colonoscopy, and people weren't coming, And, and, you know, we saw it across the board. You know, people were scared. They didn't know. They thought if they went to the hospital, they were, you know, could be exposed, it's just not the case. Um, you're safe. If you need care, please get it. Get your screenings. Um, you know, you, I, I can't say it enough. We're just seeing sicker people. People have put things off, and unfortunately, you know, then you get to a, a point where it would have been treatable had you been screened earlier, and, and now it's not as treatable. So, um, you know, that, that's the point I want to get across. It is safe to access health care.
1: Mm-hmm. Under the... Um I think I don't know if it was federal guidelines or state guidelines. Are there, is there still masking required in healthcare facilities? There
2: is. And, and, you know, I don't want to speak for our system, but, you know, I would see UPMC probably still masking, even if it wasn't required. Um, I think you'll see it, um, especially in patient care areas, for a while. You know, it's just the right thing to do for many reasons. You know, if we've learned anything, you know, we know that masking has worked. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, on, on a more, you know, casual note, I notice it really helps with my allergies. <laughs> so, and it's springtime. So, um, moving on to, this will be one of the last questions we ask before we op- open up the conversation to audience questions again if you are watching us either on youtube or our facebook stream or if you are listening on uh on the radio uh, you can submit questions for our audience or for our panelists tonight uh you leave those in the comment section on the youtube stream or on the facebook stream and uh, those will be delivered to me and just again we ask people that if you do have questions to keep them brief so starting with the last question I have at the moment. And uh, Cecil, I'm going to start with you again, just like so. How do you handle those who are in opposition to guidance or the information that you've put out during the pandemic?
2: You know, I guess, you know, providing the information is the first step. Um, You know, our local media has done a great job covering the UPMC um, news conferences that they had very frequently. Don Yuley was in the paper you know, from Pittsburgh very often. Um, So getting the word out and and really, you know, listening to the scientists and the doctors, um, that's important. Um, You know, it's not up to us as a hospital or a system to debate people. Uh, We provide the same care to somebody who's vaccinated, to somebody who chooses not to be vaccinated. Um, We treat everyone with the same dignity and respect, um, whether they're vaccinated or not vaccinated, whether they choose to wear a mask or not to. you know, that's, that's our mission. That's what we do. Um, we're not going to provide different care to different people. Um, and I can tell you one of the ED doctors, I've heard him tell the story many times. Um, you know, a patient will come in with COVID symptoms, uh, be COVID positive, and And he said, I can tell whether or not they've been vaccinated, even though I don't know for sure, just by the symptoms, how severe they are, how sick they are. Um, and he, he you know, we treat both, we treat them the same, um, but you know, there's that's you know you can look at all the evidence you want, but I hear those stories every day, um, and I, I think it's it's indisputable when you talk to somebody who is on the front line sees it every day. Um, and the other thing he always tells people, he's never treated anybody in the ED yet that came in because they got the vaccine and had some reaction or you know. So um, that's real life. That's you know that's not me reading it on Facebook. That's the real story.
1: Bree, going to ask the same question. So, uh, and and it's when it comes to county government, there's certainly there's, there's been a lot of very front line comments made at county legislature meetings by the public. How do you handle those who are in opposition to the guidance, the information that the, the county health department's been putting out?
3: Yeah, I don't know that I have a great answer for that, but I, I think I would you know echo what Cecil said. Is you start with the information, right? Like the the best information at any given time, and we know over the course of the last two years that the information has changed many times. But science is a process, and we learn as we go. And with this being a new virus, what we know about it is going to change over time. And I think that's really hard for people, and it's hard for us as organizations to adjust to that. Um, so truly, it's it's really trusting or, or, or understanding what the most recent information is and sharing it as as clearly as you can and uh, continuing to try to explain that that message might change over time because we continue to learn more. But I think that also over the last two years is that we know that there's a problem with trust, right? And we need to focus on, on that being the issue. We, we might have the best information that we can possibly have, but whether or not it's right doesn't matter if the person on the other end of the line doesn't trust you. And so we need to work on building trust in the community um, among each other as professionals, as organizations, and as community members. And if we can do that, then we can start to heal from this time, which has been incredibly challenging for all of us. Yes. Stephen?
1: Same question. Yeah. How, do you, how do you handle those who may not be quite on board with the information being coming up?
4: Yeah, yeah. Um- I think I would echo what I've heard from um, both of my friends here. First, with dignity and respect. Um, I, at the MHA, um, we fall under Office of Mental Health guidelines, so we we are still masking there. Um, so we get a lot of kickback from that now at this point, because um, we don't look like a medical facility. We don't look like a medical facility at all. So, um, And again, it's with dignity and respect. And um, I think People, um, at least with us as it relates to masking, I'm thinking of that because honestly that was on my mind today. We had an opportunity to deal with that. And um, I I will say that when you approach people with dignity and respect, most of the time, um, you get dignity and respect back. And um, I can't say that's a hundred percent true, but um, for us, from from our point of view, it has to be a hundred percent true when we're dealing with uh, those we serve in the community. And and I also think to um, you know, when I I think I learned this from being a mental health provider is to is to always listen. You know, I I. I have very strong ideas about what I know is right about what works and what doesn't work with COVID. And that's really no different than somebody else who doesn't, who disagrees with me. Um, But that one of the things that might allow us to find a place to connect is by listening. Um, So even from my point of view, which is I, I, my point of view is pretty rooted in science and what I think and what I believe, um, you know, to to listen to somebody who doesn't see it the same way, who who has a different set of knowledge or facts that they're working from, and and to to treat that with respect—that's um, always when the situation turns out the best. Um, especially when you're dealing with somebody, you know, specifically somebody who's in a mental health crisis. Um, that, um, and I guess I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I've just had to learn. OK, you're not going to put on your mask, but I'm still going to try to help you. And um, and that's OK. And that's when it's important, you know, to keep all of us, my staff safe. So that if we have somebody there who's not being safe, um, we can deal with them in a safe way. Um, and that's important because people who are in the mental health crisis are, are often not in a safe place with other health issues, whether it's COVID or something like that. So um, I, I don't think we ever walked away from anyone there. We had a couple people who walked in who were in mental health crisis, and then um, we quickly realized they were probably COVID positive too. And um, while none of us, well, I won't say none of us were, you know, we didn't stop and think, am I safe? But when we thought about that, we realized we were safe. Because we had taken the precautions that we needed to take. We were vaccinated. We were wearing masks. And we were sanitizing all over the place. And um, it, it's, um, you know, even even when you disagree and even when you vehemently disagree, um, we're still further ahead if we're respectful of each other. So, um, and then you figure out how to make it work. So, yeah. Mm, yeah.
1: Yep. One of the things, we, we mentioned science a lot, and I... Just a flashback thinking about every I mean, a majority of people going through school and you know taking science classes, taking mm-hmm. history and education. I mean, those are classes where you are the knowledge you learn. Then you most of the time you anticipate it's going to stay the same, mm-hmm. but really when it comes to everything, yeah. there are advances being made. But if you're not following those fields, you don't necessarily see it. So to have things so fluid in the scientific field and how fast things can change that is not always familiar for people and is very and change is uncomfortable to begin with and then you have so many changes during the pandemic that i can understand why people are resistant even still to what they're hearing even though it's factual even though it's based in science-based evidence and everything so i can empathize in that sense even though even it's, it's difficult when we were going through it and still going through it, you know, okay well we heard this is an issue but this is now we know this we want to treat it this way or we've moved our thought process to this is how we're going to monitor and and it's people want to grab onto something and hold so tight and I think I think it's where we end up going to so um, be very quick we have one time time for like one question uh, and I mentioned something about and, Bree, you brought this up, this fact that when you were dealing with it, you didn't know all this money was coming. So in terms of funding, I imagine that all three of your agencies have benefited in some way from some of the funding coming down from the feds or from other agencies or places. And, Brie, if we can start with you, um, what are some of the things you've been able to do now that you couldn't have done two years ago with some of the funding you've gotten?
3: Um, so there's actually a new program that we're currently developing. It's not quite... Uh, to the, the point where we're pushing out to the public so much, but the we're going to have uh, funding to support fellows uh, to work in public health. And the goal of that is really to build public health infrastructure and to build capacity in public health and encourage people who maybe weren't even necessarily pursuing public health as a career path uh, to educate them and support them and provide them with real life experience in public health. Um, really boots on the ground kind of Efforts and in the past we've we've had interns here and there, uh, but we've never been able to pay them it's never been a you know paid position necessarily there's been a couple that were because of special circumstances but um, we've never had this kind of opportunity before, and so moving forward over the course of the next year we're going to have an opportunity to bring on up to twelve different people full time working in the field on different public health efforts that have been impacted by covid nineteen so that 's just one example of funding that 's been supporting us and will be growing over the next year great,
1: Stephen, moving quickly to you because we are running out of time, but I want to get to everyone has, has, Have you received any funding that 's been allowed you to do anything that you couldn 't have done before
4: uh, yeah, we have um, one of the um, we 've actually received funding um, to be able to provide um, uh, retention bonuses to peers um, so just as there's a healthcare care um, worker shortage everywhere it is to some extent in our field too um, and we've also I think one thing that's come out of us because a lot of times peers are at the front line of responding um, there's really been a greater embrace of of us as as medical professionals, so um, and New York State's really recognized that and increased some funding so that we're able to pay a, uh, a living wage and to support people who are peer specialists in a professional way.
1: Okay. So, wow! Yeah. And Cecil, is uh, UPMC been able to see any benefit from from financially at least in terms of programs? you're able to provide?
2: Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, it's the the biggest effect we had was when we had stopped doing. Um, non-essential surgeries, which I laugh at that term because, you know, if you need a, a knee replacement, I don't think you would say it's, it's not essential or elective. But that being said, you know, we had months where we had to um, shut down our surgery, and, and that certainly is revenue generating for us. Um, so I think I think what the funds did, it helped us keep Everything open, you know we didn't have to limit any service at, at all. We could keep every staff member working, um, everybody was paid the entire time, whether they we had work for them or not, um, so I think that was the important thing. Well,
1: well. Well, thank you for, for anybody who's um, looking for more information on, about COVID-19. You can visit the Chautauqua County Government's website at chqgov.com where they have links on the front page to the health department's pages. Also visit mhashatauqua.org to learn more about what the Mental Health Association in Chautauqua County has to offer. I want to thank, thank each of you again for participating in this panel tonight. Uh, and also thank you to our audience. You will be able to view this presentation online for free on our Facebook page, YouTube channel, and on wrfalp.com. On behalf of the WRFA, the A Center for the Arts team, Ed Tomasini and crew, thank you for being with us tonight here on WRFA.